Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, the book of Acts, chapter 9, continued. Acts chapter 9 began with the fierce heretic hunter, Paul determined that he was going to help eradicate this new sect of Judaism that called itself the Way, but whom the other Jewish factions called the Notzrim. But by halfway through the chapter, Shaul has had a life-changing encounter with Yeshua, calling out to him from heaven, and has himself come to accept that Yeshua is the long-awaited Messiah. Paul finds himself joining the very group he set out to destroy. Now because the concept of Judaism as the organizational birthplace of Christ worship can be so challenging for Gentile Christians and Jews as well, to get a handle on this, I'm going to restate something we've talked about before. What is it about the way, insisting that Yeshua is Messiah, which has caused the other factions of Judaism to feel such anger towards them to the point of murder? I mean, after all, their founder and their leader, Yeshua, was dead. Obviously, he was of no further threat to Judaism's leadership structure. While it's always a little dangerous to oversimplify a complex issue, in the end, it was that the traditions taught by Yeshua didn't agree with the traditions taught by these other factions of Judaism. Or in church speak, it was a violent disagreement over religious doctrines and over religious authority. Even in Israel today, the disagreements over halakha, Jewish law, and religious authority among Jewish factions can be extremely heated, regularly resulting in assaults and in property damage, and especially when it involves Jewish followers of Yeshua. A few years ago, an Israeli Messianic Jewish family that I personally know was viciously attacked by an Orthodox religious Jew over obvious differences in doctrines. This family's teenage boy received an explosive device disguised as a Purim gift. He brought it to his kitchen table, he opened it, it exploded in his face. It destroyed the room, injuring and burning him terribly. Now miraculously, with numerous operations, he survived. Like for the believers that Paul was pursuing, the issue that caused this attempted murder was not personal per se. It was about halakha, Jewish law and traditions. It was about one faction of Judaism, Messianic Judaism, being picked on by another faction of Judaism. By way of example, I pointed out in an earlier lesson that shortly before the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD several disciples of the Jewish faction from the Rabbinic Academy of Hillel murdered 
a number of disciples of the Rabbinic Academy of Shammai over a proposed list of oral traditions that Shammai wanted the Sanhedrin to enact and to enforce. So issues about who was Messiah weren't the only reasons for violence among Jewish factions. And while it might seem so to modern Christians, the persecution that the Jewish believers in the book of Acts were experiencing from other Jews was nothing new and in fact has continued sporadically and for varying reasons for centuries. Let's also remember that at the point we're at in the book of Acts, there was as yet no Gentile membership in the way and no Roman involvement in the persecutions. This was purely, as we are in Acts chapter 9, an issue of infighting among the Jews. However, not all factions of Judaism were determined to eradicate the way, only a few of the most zealous. Some merely tried to harass and, and, and thwart their efforts. Others had a more live and let live attitude. And to be fair, as regards the Purim bombing incident, Israeli, Israeli news media raged against this attack and a few leaders of mainstream Judaism personally apologized to this teenage boy's family and openly denounced the actions of that Purim bomber. So we can no more indict all Judaism as violent persecutors of Peter and of the way in the New Testament era then we can indict all Judaism as persecutors of the modern day Messianic Jews. We need to keep that perspective in mind as we continue our, in our study of the book of Acts. Now when we left Paul, he was still up in Damascus, having only recently been healed from his spiritual and his physical blindness by Hananiah, one of the disciples of Christ that had fled from Jerusalem, who reluctantly laid hands on Paul at God's instructions. Now Hananiah knew full well who Shaul was and he greatly feared him. He wasn't so easily buying that Paul had suddenly become a dedicated believer between the small amount of time from when he left Jerusalem with warrants in his hand to arrest Yeshua followers and then his arriving in Damascus a few days later, supposedly a changed man. But the Lord reassured Hananiah that Paul was now in the fold and in fact he'd been assigned the duty of taking the good news to the Gentiles. Something else that Hananiah couldn't have been too thrilled about. But the ever obedient disciple obeyed God and Paul received the Holy Spirit. Paul ended his fast that began on the day that Yeshua confronted him. He ate, he regained his strength, and straight away he went to the local synagogues in Damascus to preach what he just learned, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's pick up with verse 22 of chapter 9. Open your complete Jewish Bibles. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, page uh, 1373. Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 22. We're going to read to the end. 
But Shaul was being filled with more and more power. He was creating an uproar among the Jews living in Damascus with his proofs that Yeshua is the Messiah. Now quite some time later, the non-believing Jews gathered together and made plans to kill him, but their plot became known to Shaul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to do away with him, but under cover of night, his Talmudim, disciples, took him and led him down over the city wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now on reaching Yerushalayim, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a disciple. However, Barnabah got hold of him and took him to the emissaries. He told them how Shaul had seen the Lord while traveling, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damasek, Damascus, Shaul had spoken up boldly in the name of Yeshua. So he remained with them and he went all over Jerusalem, continuing to speak out boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked, he debated with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they began making attempts to kill him. And when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Then the Messianic community throughout Judah, the Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace and was built up. They lived in the fear of the Lord with the counsel of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and their numbers kept multiplying. As Kepha, as Peter, traveled around the countryside, he came down to the believers in Lud. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had lain bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. And Cephas said to him, Aeneas, Yeshua the Messiah is healing you. Get up, make your bed. Everyone living in Lud and in the Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Yafo, there was a Talmudah, that's a female disciple, named Tavita, which means gazelle. She was always doing tzedakah, righteous deeds, and other good deeds. And it happened that just at that time, she took sick and died. And after washing her, they laid her in, an upstairs, in a room upstairs. Lud is near Yafo. And the disciples had heard that Kepha was there, so they sent two men to him and urged him, please come to us without delay. Kepha got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him into the upstairs room and all the widows stood by him sobbing and showing him all the dresses and coats Tavita had made while she was still with them. But Kepha put them all outside and he kneeled down and he prayed. Then turning to the body, he said, Tavita, get up. She opened her eyes. And on seeing Kepha, she sat up and he offered her his hand, helped her to her feet and then calling the believers and the widows, he presented her to them alive. This became known all over Yafo. Many people put their trust in the Lord. Kepha stayed on in Yafo for some time with a man named Shimon, a leather tanner. Paul, apparently, had been a zealot in everything he did. As we assemble his life history, we see that he came to Jerusalem at a young age, to seek the best religious training at the most elite school. That he was, as he once described himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning that he adopted the strictest code of Judaism for himself. That he was present at Stephen's stoning, cheering it on. And then, that he was one of the hunters that the Sanhedrin employed to find and arrest those Jewish believers who fled Jerusalem to Damascus. So it's not surprising that after his salvation he remained every bit as zealous and uncompromising, but for Christ 
It was simply how Paul was wired. Thus we find him in the synagogues preaching the good news, getting into fiery debates with these Damascus congregations and upsetting the Jewish population in general. It seems that Paul was at first the proverbial bull in a china shop. He had the intelligence, the desire, the drive, the ability to preach the good news. Yet, we don't hear of one single person in Damascus that Paul convinced to follow Yeshua. Not one. No doubt it was because he had not yet learned to temper his enthusiasm with humility and with the godly wisdom that must accompany true evangelism. Verse 23 begins with the words, quite some time later. Now this could be weeks later, could be years that we read of Paul finally upsetting some of the Jews of Damascus sufficiently, they decided to kill him. Seems like wherever Paul went, somebody wanted to kill him. Let me again interject. What had Paul done to warrant their death threats? The standard halakha, the traditions that mainstream Judaism followed, didn't agree with Paul's new halakha, which had become that of the Jewish believers, what Yeshua had taught him. Nothing more. But the issues involved, mainly that Yeshua was the Messiah and he was deity, were so sensitive that it led to a desire of this movement's most outspoken opponents to kill. Now I want to pause here and shift gears. Because we find in our passage that Paul had to be stealthily smuggled out of Damascus in a basket and he would go back to Jerusalem. However, the timeline of this sequence of events is problematic when we compare it to Paul's own writings. In Galatians, Paul says this in 1 Galatians 15-19. through But when God, who picked me out before I was born and called me by His grace, chose to reveal His Son to me so that I might announce Him to the Gentiles, I did not consult anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were emissaries before me. Instead, I immediately went off to Arabia, then afterwards returned to Damascus, to Damascus. Not until three years later did I go up to Yerushalayim to make Kephas acquaintance, and I stayed with him for two weeks. But I did not see any of the other emissaries except Yaakov, that's uh, Jacob, or as it is in most of our Bibles, James, the Lord's brother. So the issue is this. Here in Acts chapter 9, it seems that during the time that Paul first came to believe, he stayed in Damascus for an extended time. Then, when a plot was discovered to murder him, some local disciples helped him to escape the walled city of Damascus by luring him down in a basket. And then the next thing we're told in verse 26 is he went to Jerusalem. So, the story in Acts 9 seems to say that all this happened in a direct sequence. He arrived in Damascus as a new believer. He escaped Damascus and went to Jerusalem. However, Galatians appears to tell a different story about that. In Galatians, Paul says that after he left Damascus, he first went to Arabia. Then afterwards, went 
back to Damascus. So only after his second visit to Damascus did he finally go back to Jerusalem. Now, there are other issues of discrepancy as well, but we're just going to focus on the timeline for the moment. In Galatians, it seems, that between the time that Paul first fled from Damascus and before he went to Jerusalem is three years, it is common for Bible commentators to say that he was in Arabia for three years. But that's only an assumption. It's not what the scripture passage says. We only know that the amount of time he spent in Arabia plus the amount of time he spent on his return trip to Damascus totaled three years. We don't know how he divided his time between Arabia and Damascus. As Acts 9.23 says, it was quite some time later when he left Damascus for Jerusalem. We have here an indefinite period of time from when Paul was led into Damascus blind and in a few days began preaching the gospel in synagogues to when he fled Damascus for Arabia then eventually went back to Damascus. He caused another ruckus and he had to escape over the wall at night. Now admittedly, because Acts 9 and Galatians 1, those passages leave out so much detail. And it's unclear exactly how much time he spent where. There are various interpretations by scholars and commentators. But without trying to define the exact amount of time, the sequence seems pretty obvious when we blend the information of Acts 9 with Galatians 1. Paul was on his way to Damascus when he met Christ. He arrived in Damascus, he received the Holy Spirit, he regained his sight, and he began preaching the good news in synagogues. All in just a few days. At some undefined point, Shaul left Damascus for Arabia. After living in Arabia for some unknown amount of time, he returned to Damascus for some unknown amount of time. However, we do know that between the time he left Damascus for Arabia, then returned to Damascus, then left Damascus again, this time for Jerusalem, that period of time was three years. So essentially, everything we see happening from Acts 9 verse 1 to verse 26 took place over a period of three years. That's about the best we can do without involving considerable speculation. Well, what did Paul do when he was in Arabia? We don't know. Some say he preached the gospel there, but nothing says that. That's why he went or what he did. Might some of the Jerusalem believers have fled to Arabia? So he went there to stay with them or to minister to them, uh, safe from those in Damascus who wanted to kill him. Perhaps even learning from them, instructing them. It's unknowable. However, any notion that during the three years away that Shaul was given some kind of special education by believers to prepare him for his mission just doesn't fly. Nor is there any hint that Paul was like Moses and that God himself gave one-on-one instruction to Paul. Nor while away from his Pharisee associates did he transition from Judaism and become a Christian. We're going to see the truth of that play out in the coming chapters of Acts. Now I can say this without reservation. There is no evidence or implication that there were any disciples at all in Arabia. Although for certain there were Jewish communities in Arabia. 
And whatever disciples lived in Damascus, well, they were ordinary disciples, not the leadership who tasked themselves as the teachers of the finer points of the gospel. And by the way, we're specifically told that in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, and in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. But more importantly, you see, it's because Paul was already a Torah scholar. He knew more about the Torah of Moses and the prophets and the writings and the oral traditions of the Pharisees than any of those he was among. I mean, we must remember what Paul learned upon coming to faith in Christ was some new oral traditions. In other words, new Bible interpretations that confirmed that Yeshua was the Messiah. Not that everything he knew was wrong and he had to start over from scratch. Even what he had to relearn concerned primarily the very narrow issues of the identification and the nature of the Messiah and how salvation occurred. Paul didn't need three months, let alone three years of training to be an effective preacher of the gospel and it's not as though some extensive blueprint for a new religion complete with new doctrines had been created by the Jerusalem believers in a few short years since Messiah's death and ascent into heaven. A blueprint that Paul needed to be taught. Paul was already a noted Bible expert. He was trained in teaching. That is why his letters dominate the New Testament. And he is considered an authority over the believing congregations in the diaspora. He deals with scripture passages and doctrine in organized, articulate, deeply spiritual and practical ways that could be very difficult for Jews of his day's day, as well as for modern and even early Christians to understand because of this high level academic background and his he had and his thorough knowledge of the Tanakh, the Old, the Old Testament. And by the way, I hope by now, Seed of Abraham Torah class listeners understand there was no New Testament in existence during Paul's era. Nor did Paul think he was part of writing one. We've covered this before, but it would be about a hundred years after Paul before a New Testament was proposed. And at the time, that proposal was considered heresy. And it would be 150 years after Paul before one was actually formulated and declared by the Gentile bishops. They chose some of Paul's and Peter's letters that had been written to various congregations along with some gospel accounts and a few other documents that they felt were the most reliable out of the many that were floating around to form this New Testament. Thus, everything Paul quoted and interpreted in his writings as regards Yeshua's advent and all that it means were based on the ancient Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, not some new writings. And yet, when he explained his interpretations, he naturally used the terms, the thought processes of his culture and from his years of training in the Pharisee discipline, and these all revolved around halakha, 
So, it's about three years after Paul came to faith in Christ that we find him back in Jerusalem. And he wants to meet with the disciples, meaning the leadership, in Jerusalem. Now, Paul is a natural leader. And so, he's most comfortable dealing with leadership as we see he used to deal with the leadership of the Sanhedrin. Naturally, then that's who he seeks out. However, just as it was in Damascus, even three years later now, the believers in Jerusalem don't trust him. They didn't believe that he'd really become one of them. And although it isn't mentioned, his old associates among the priesthood and the the ruling Sadducees and the Pharisees no doubt would have considered him a traitor. So, Paul finds himself in a bind. There was one believer, though, that was willing to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. Bar-Nabah. Now, he takes Paul to the emissaries, meaning the leadership. This brings us to another issue that some Bible commentators see as a discrepancy. In Galatians 1, 18 and 19, Paul says, he went to Jerusalem, but he only met with Peter and with James, Yeshua's brother. Yet here in Acts 9, the inference is he was taken to meet with most or all of the 12 disciples. Now I want to point out that in the case of Acts 9, we likely have Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, using second-hand information. He was not an eyewitness to this. And telling the story in broad and general terms. While in Galatians 1, we have Paul giving his own account of the same story, but being more specific. It would be like me saying that on such and such a day, my wife went to the supermarket to do grocery shopping. But when she recounts the story, she says she went to the supermarket and and bought milk and eggs. I told the story in a general way. She added specific detail. My story could be construed by others to mean she bought many different things. But in reality, she only bought a couple of items. Either way, she went to the supermarket. In fact, it may be that Luke didn't even know who exactly among the believers' leadership that Paul met with. But later on, Paul, in his own letter to the Galatians, says, well, it was only with two of the leaders, Kepha and Yaakov. And at this time, Peter and James are the top two leaders of the way. Well, Paul did in Jerusalem, as he had done in Damascus. After meeting with Kepha and Yaakov, he went around preaching about Yeshua, no doubt with their permission. Although it doesn't say so, specifically Paul would have taught in some of the 400 or so synagogues that crowded Jerusalem at this time. Most of the synagogues were Hellenist. That explains why it was specifically the Hellenist Jews that decided, uh, rather that started to make attempts to, to, to kill him. Now I'm wondering, by now, if it's occurring to anybody other than me, that somehow the Judaism of Paul's era seems to have forgotten all about that Torah commandment, thou shalt not kill. I mean, somewhere along the way, since the Babylonian exile, because of the teachings of the, the, the rabbis and the sages had superseded the actual teachings of God and His Word, matters became confused. 
and it was deemed justifiable to take the life of someone whose doctrine didn't match your own if the issue was deemed fundamental enough. See, it's interesting that never will we encounter the accusation that Jewish believers had left Judaism. So, that's why they could be murdered. Not once will we hear of a Jew being told he can't be both a a Jew and a worshiper of Yeshua as Messiah. So, how much their doctrines disagreed didn't disqualify believers as being Jewish. Now, I'm sorry to say, we have similar problems among Christians and Messianics today. And the reason for it now is the same as it was in the New Testament era. The identity of Messiah. But today, Jews do indeed accuse Jewish believers of giving up their Jewishness. And Gentile believers demand that Jews minimize or even abandon their Jewishness in order to worship Christ. The teaching of God's word then and now have almost become passé. I'm not sure whether the disinterest of the congregations in the Holy Scriptures has led to pastors and rabbis not bothering to learn and to teach the Scriptures. Or if it's pastors and rabbis who find it easier and more efficient to preach man-made doctrines and social issues than the Bible. So the people assume they're one and the same. I don't know. But today we find all sorts of new traditions and doctrines among believing congregations that turns God's actual word on its head. For example, God demands that we execute convicted murderers. Most of Christianity and Judaism say that mercy and compassion demands that we not. The Lord says marriage is one man to one woman. Large and growing segments of Christianity and Judaism say that as long as love is involved, marriage is however we choose to define it. And this list goes on. So while we can look on with alarm and and disgust at the believers in Paul's day being singled out for death by other Jews over doctrines of Judaism and wonder how worshipers of the God of Israel could do such a thing, we first need to look in the mirror. We need to ask how believers in Yeshua, the God of Israel, could adopt the ideas and the behaviors that many of us have that are so contradictory to God's written instructions. In both cases, the answer is the same. Man-made doctrines and traditions have eventually overturned God's word. In verse 30, the believers in Jerusalem somehow learn about a plot against Paul and they get him out of town before it can be carried out. Paul is first sent to Caesarea, then to Tarsus, the town of his birth, where his parents and or his family lived. Caesarea is referring to Caesarea Maritima, which is a bustling port city located about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. I've taken hundreds of people there on tours to Israel. 
And it is truly breathtaking. It was a crown jewel in many of Herod's building projects, second maybe only to the temple in Jerusalem. The city was thoroughly Roman in design, in architecture, in engineering technology, and in purpose. It contained a pagan temple, a hippodrome, uh, it had a large amphitheater, and the most modern of port facilities. It served as the provincial seat of Roman governance of Judea. But it also had a large and wealthy Jewish population. It was, it's clear from Paul's first destination, or rather final destination, Tarsus, that the reason he went to Caesarea was to get ship passage to Tarsus. Now Tarsus would give Paul a good base from which to launch his mission to the Gentiles. He would have easy access to all points of the compass from there. And he would have had a friendly environment to host him in the meantime. As a native of Tarsus and as a Roman citizen, he had every advantage and he was going to make good use of it. And no doubt by now, Paul was learning to be a little more measured in how he approached the issue of the gospel as he brought it to both diaspora Jews and to Gentiles. You know, this is another wonderful lesson for us that's just under the surface here. Paul was given his marching orders directly from God. Take the good news of Yeshua to the Gentiles. So far as we know, up to now, there's nothing more specific than that. So when God gives us an assignment, it is up to us to get up and get moving. Pray as preparation. But don't expect the assignment to be accomplished supernaturally. Think. Assess. Learn. Organize. Do. God gave each of us a brain and certain abilities. Sometimes the Lord will give us unusual backgrounds or maybe circumstances that give us a unique opportunity to reach a certain segment of society or to accomplish a task that perhaps others couldn't. Don't be afraid of who you are. Don't be afraid to draw on your life experiences to use your abilities, your assets, in service to the Lord. Verse 31 says that after Paul's departure... Throughout the Holy Land, the Messianic community enjoyed peace. The intent's not to say that it was because of Paul leaving that Messianics enjoyed peace. But rather that on a timeline, it was after Paul departed, that things also calmed down. But it also means that those zealots who were so determined to harass and destroy the Yeshua followers had calmed down. And this period of quiet gave the believers a chance to spread their message without fear. Now notice in the same verse that it speaks of the believers living in the fear of the Lord. Now a better, more literal translation of the Greek is not living, but rather going in the fear of the Lord. I point this out because at this point in Jewish history, the biblical phrase 
walking in the fear of the Lord or going in the fear of the Lord had become a standard expression within Jewish life that meant to denote faithful observance to the halakha, to Jewish law. So remember what I told you that the word halakha means? It means the path that one walks. So the idea is that walking in the fear of the Lord is the path that one walks. See how that all fits together? And in that era, halakha consisted of a combination of Torah law, oral law, and customs that Judaism said establishes the path that one ought to walk. Now among scholars, a phrase of this type is called a Hebraism. That is, just like we might call the phrase, don't let the cat out of the bag, an Americanism, because it is used nowhere else but in America, it has a meaning among Americans that goes beyond what the words mean in their literal sense. So only Americans know what it means. After all, this particular Americanism has nothing to do with cats or bags. It merely means to keep something secret. A Hebraism does the same thing. These are sayings that have a certain meaning only within Hebrew society. And the saying doesn't necessarily mean exactly what the individual words seem to say. And I've often said, I'm sure I'm glad that Christ never said, don't let the cat out of the bag. I can't even imagine what some churches would look like. <clears throat> you could have those for the bag and those for the cat. I'm quite sure. Now I bring all this up. Because the New Testament is chocked full of Hebraisms that can be hard to spot because they are first expressed from Hebrew thought written down in Greek and then further translated to English. Thus, we can look at the literal meaning of those words and we get the wrong impression unless we recognize it as a uniquely Hebrew expression. So in the New Testament, whenever we see the particular expression of going or walking in the fear of the Lord, it is actually a Hebraism that is referring to being faithful to the total body of Halakha. And of course, this was considered at that time as the most pious, God-fearing thing that any Jew, believer or otherwise, could do. Now verse 32 now transitions away from Paul. Back to Peter, the unquestioned leader of the way at this time. He was traveling around ministering to believers who were also, or rather who were scattered in groups all around the Holy Land. He came to a town called Lud. Lud is also known as Lydda. This was a large Jewish city in the Roman province of Samaria, about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Here Peter would perform another healing miracle. Now the subject was a man named Aeneas, 
who we are told had been paralyzed for eight years. The most common reason for sudden paralysis in an adult in this era was a stroke. Aeneas was a believer. Well, Peter went into his room, he prayed over him in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. In fact, the form of the prayer is a command for Aeneas to be healed of his paralysis. Clearly, since Aeneas was a believer living amongst other believers, many prayers for his healing would already have been sent heavenward. But Peter had been given special authority by Christ to do miracles. And since the man had been bedridden for eight years, Peter's command to get up and make your bed is actually a bit lighthearted, if not humorous. Many non-believers in the area heard about this. They saw Aeneas healed, and this brought them to faith in Yeshua. The added significance is, this occurred where? Samaria. So many Samaritans lived there. And as we've discussed before, there was great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. No doubt those who came to faith involved both Samaritans and Jews. Well, from there, Peter was called to Yafo, also known as Jaffa and Jopa. In Yafo lived a young lady named Tabata. Tabata is Hebrew for gazelle. The Greek word for gazelle is Dorcas. Dorcas. So occasionally, we'll see the name Dorcas in our Bibles. English Bibles usually call her Tabitha. Now she was known as a good woman who helped others. However, she suddenly took ill and died. Now because in Hebrew society, burial, burial must be accomplished by sundown of the day that person passes away, they quickly washed her body, wrapped her in linen, and laid her on her bed. So take notice that in the case of the paralyzed man in Lydda, now with the deceased woman in Yafo, both are believers. Thus in both cases, the local community fully knew that if he wanted to, the Lord could heal not only the paralysis, but even bring the dead back to life. Who better to summon then than Peter? Upper rooms were common on houses as rather easy ways to add on more living space since all roofs were flat roofs. Once the upper rooms, uh, often rather the upper rooms were guest quarters. It was customary for a Hebrew to be laid out in their own bed, in their own room, should they die. That it was an upper room doesn't change any of that. Now verse 39 explains that Peter immediately went to Tabitha's bedside and next to her bed were these sobbing widows, we're told. See, the likely significance that there were several widows present is that often widows were hired to come and be part of customary mourning rites. They were usually available. They needed money. So a small fee would be paid to them. So it had become rather customary to employ widows as professional mourners. 
These widows were no strangers to Tabitha as they each displayed the clothes that Tabitha had made and given to them. This tells us that these widows were indeed poor. Now Peter wasted no time. He sent the widows away and he prayed over Tabitha. And just as Kepha had ordered the disabled Aeneas to get up out of his bed, so he orders the deceased Tabitha to get up out of her bed. Immediately she opened her eyes and sat up. Folks, our God has the power over life and death. Death is no obstacle for Him. And this is a hope that we have that is more than a wish. It's a promise. As believers, we're still going to die. It's not going to be permanent. We will live again. And our God has but to think it to make it so. Peter actually follows a biblical pattern here. This is not the first time in the Bible that a prophet of God has been used to bring the dead back to life. Elijah did it. Elisha did it. And of course Yeshua did it. And each time the pattern was that the corpse was lying on their bed and the pattern, uh, the, the, the pattern is that prophet, the prophet ordered everyone to leave the room. The Lord was then beseeched through prayer by the prophet and in his sovereign will. God acted by raising that person from the dead, just like we see here with Tabitha. One can only imagine the joy as Peter took her hand and led her to her many friends who anxiously awaited no doubt many harbored hope, sincere hope, that Tabitha would be returned to them. But I wonder how many actually thought it would happen. Was it for Tabitha's sake that the Lord reanimated her lifeless body? No. Tabitha's eternal future was secure. The reason for this miracle is stated in the very next verse. In Acts 9.42, this became known all over Yafo, and many people put their trust in the Lord. God's purpose for the miracles of Aeneas and Tabitha was to demonstrate His power, His love, His authority over everything seen and unseen. Many who saw these things happen with their own eyes could not resist and they too accepted Yeshua into their hearts. This chapter ends with the notice that Kepha stayed in Yafo for an undetermined amount of time being hosted by Shimon, a leather tanner. We're going to learn more about Shimon next time. But for now just know that a leather tanner was pretty much the lowliest craft a person could practice. The tanning fluid used in those days was so putrid an odor that they usually set up shop by the sea in hopes that the wind would help some. But it also meant that the tanner wore a permanent stench that no amount of bathing or incense could solve. Peter then 
the head of this rapidly growing Yeshua movement, so loved by God, given such awesome authority by Christ, didn't stay in a lovely home with a wealthy person of status in the community. Instead, he chose the hospitality of the lowliest, least respected craftsman in Jewish society who wasn't usually even permitted near other folks. We'll begin Acts chapter 10 next week.